Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us today again. Uh, this is Nick Chelan, the former Chief Software Officer for the Air Force and Space Force. Wanted to uh, share a few things today. We're gonna be talking about identity management, also Atlassian, what happened also with their uh, issues uh, related to their clouds. But in the meantime, before we get started, I wanted to give you a few reminders. Uh, please, please, please subscribe to our mailing list so we're not uh, completely dependent on uh, these uh, great companies to reach out to you guys uh, by subscribing. We have access to your email. We're not abusing of it. It's uh, one, one email uh, or two at, at, at best a week to notify you of the videos being released. We're going to be releasing every end of the week uh, technical videos. The next one is going to be on why we believe that Kubernetes must be used, even if you think it's overkill. It's going to create a lot of debate. It's going to be interesting, but uh, we're going to try to make our case as to why uh, Kubernetes is a must in 2022. So that's the next video coming out uh, next this week. And then uh, every Tuesday, we're going to keep uh, our show with guests and uh, do deep dives. You'll see we have a pretty uh, cool lineup. I'll be announcing at the end of this uh, episode the two uh, next guests that we're going to be having uh, for the next two Tuesdays. Uh, today, we're going to be covering... Uh, you know, identity management, what to host as a multi-tenant uh, hosted uh, SaaS capability, what not to, to host as a SaaS. So that's going to be interesting as well. Now, um, we're trying to get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash Nicolas Chillon. So please uh, share to a couple of your friends that you believe will like the technical deep dives and the DoD related content. Um, you know, we're, we're getting very close. You know, in two weeks, we went from pretty much zero uh, to 760. So thank you so much for subscribing. Also, you can hit the little bell button so uh, you know that uh, um, you can be notified of the new videos. So like I said, at the end of this week, we're going to be publishing uh, technical video, uh, this technical video on, on Kubernetes. That's going to be fun. And then we're going to start doing deep dives on service mesh, GitOps, and Frustrious code and all these things. Uh, very, you know, short but um, intense, I guess, maybe too fast. I need to slow down a little bit when I talk, uh, I'm being told. So I'm going to try to do that uh, to give you as much insight as possible. So again, uh, uh, the video we published, if you missed it uh, last week, was uh, uh, a Kubernetes introduction video on, on, on helping you finally understand what Kubernetes is about and why it matters with some tangible point of, of uh, data there. So check it out if you missed it. We just passed a thousand views. I'm pretty excited about it. So thank you for watching it if you watched it already. All right. So I uh, wanted to remind everybody, if you finally want to get back face-to-face uh, -face and you live uh, in the DC metro, uh, we're going to have this great conference, uh, the F5 Public Sector Symposium at the Ritz-Carlton in uh, Tyson's Corner in Virginia. Um, so it's also virtual, so you can, uh, of course, uh, check it out virtually. But if you want to go back face-to-face -face and finally meet people again, that's the place to go. Uh, we're going to have a lot of people, a lot of people excited. I'll be speaking and sharing what are the three pillars uh, for modern cybersecurity uh, implementation. Uh, that includes, of course, uh, uh, zero trust, uh, continuous monitoring with behavior uh, prevention and uh, moving target defense with cattle versus pets and all the good stuff. So we'll do some deep dive in that keynote. That's going to be fun. So I love. I hope to see you there if you uh, if you're going to uh, 
uh, to Tyson's Corner uh, April April nineteenth. So it's coming uh, next week, next Tuesday. So um, and the same afternoon, I'll be back on the show. Uh, that's going to be an interesting day. So looking forward to seeing you if you are going to go there. Now, in case you were uh, living under a rock for the next for the last couple of uh, months, you've seen uh, the hacking group uh, Lapsus uh, targeting multiple companies. Um, there were some arrests, but I believe there is many uh, people left uh, to go after. But uh, uh, certainly uh, pretty concerning to see some of the the code and the source code being targeted and leaked both in Samsung, Microsoft, and NVIDIA. That's going to lead to significant zero days. Uh, but, a, but a recent also breach uh, was uh, the, the company Octo, uh, which uh, obviously was uh, uh, targeted uh, particularly because of the uh, crown jewel aspect of identity management. And so there is a whole debate. And when I was in the Department of Defense, I was kind of pushing against using a SaaS capability for a few things. I believe in SaaS, don't get me wrong, but I also think that um, SaaS uh, multi-tenant control plane are a massive risk uh, to your cyber defense. And so there are a few things you should probably not and you probably should not uh, host as a multi-tenant SaaS capability. Identity management, of course, that's your crown jewel of your identities. That's a pretty pretty bad idea so we're gonna debate about this today and if you have different opinions please um, make sure you ask questions and comment in the comment section below but also uh, we're gonna be uh, uh, talking about you know multi-tenant control plane on zero trust so your policy enforcement point and uh, uh, kind of you know the the, the risk of, of effectively giving the keys to your kingdom to a third party company same thing when it comes to to git and your source code repo um, do you want to use a hosted version or you want to bring it on-premise or on your own clouds and control that ingress, egress, be able to uh, use a proper uh, software-defined parameter in front of that to make sure you mitigate your risk. So we're going to talk about that kind of stuff today. That's going to be interesting. And for that, we're going to, we're going to bring a, a, a great guest that has a very deep background uh, in identity management. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring him on the screen right now uh welcome i'm gonna put you on top of me so people can see you uh good morning good afternoon uh, thanks good so morning. much yeah good to to have you on the show uh you know uh, we've been talking uh, a long time and uh your background of course uh being uh, you know the co-founder and chief uh, security so cso but not the same kind of cso uh, not a chief software officer like me, but a chief uh, security officer, the more, more common CSO, I guess, uh, a cloud entity where you have, of course, 20 years of uh, uh, management and architecture experience across identity, security, microservice domains. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, kind of the, the focal point of the discussion today is people that want to follow you, uh, you are, of course, on LinkedIn. And that's the link there to, to reach out to you. But first, like I always do before we get into the real... Uh, me, Nathaniel, if you can uh, do a quick uh, background of your journey and how we get we, you got here, and, and then we're going to start digging into uh, some of the real meat. And I wanted to remind everybody, we already have a few questions, uh, but uh, make sure that uh, you post the, the questions, starting with a queue, so we know it's not uh, just a comment. We have a lot of people uh, tweeting and things, so it's uh, easier if you um, if you just use a queue to show that you're, um, you're asking a question. So... 
over to you for your journey, and then we'll dig into the real meat of the, the discussion. Yeah, for, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Nicholas. I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and speak on the podcast. You know, as we look at the journey, right, I think it's, it's actually kind of interesting um, because I got sucked into IAM almost right from the get-go, right? Worked in, in comp sci, uh, major comp sci, I guess is, is more accurate. Uh, worked in major there, and then I got pulled right into uh, Boeing, working on JSF. Uh, actually ha ended up building a lot of the initial PKI infrastructure for the Joint Strike Fighter uh, as they were doing the bids out to, I think it was Lockheed and Boeing, if I remember correctly, at that point in time. Um, and then they, they were brought together. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a, it's a little bit of an ancient history now. Brought them back together uh, and then built a lot of that initial, you know, how do we authenticate and authorize different users, different partners, different um, customers, right, of the different data points that were being accessed and being produced uh, as they rolled out that that uh, that program. From there, moved into Sun Microsystems, um, helping them establish, you know, what became one of the fundamental IAM practices back in the early 2000s uh, for defining the industry, and then kind of jumped around a little bit, a couple different startups um, that successfully exited again, wrapped around IAM, got pulled into Imperva. Uh, early on, one of their first couple dozen customers, or sorry, a couple dozen hires. <laughs> uh, and then as part of that, you know, started to realize, started you know, real we needed much, sorry, what, what's that? No, go ahead. Oh, my apologies. Yeah, we, mean, we needed much better signaling. We need much more intelligence, right? We needed all of the cybersecurity. We needed all of the identity access management capabilities. We needed to munge those together, right, as different signals to make the most intelligent authorization decisions possible with the shortest time from authentication. And that really yielded cloud entity. And we looked at how we can start to bring in more signaling, more intelligence, uh, more capability into the authorization landscape. Uh, so, you know, obviously, you know, um, all the foundation of, of security around strong identities is so important, right? How do you get to a, to a secure uh, tech stack if you don't have strong identities, both on the, what we call for people that don't know too much, maybe about identity management, the uh, the person entity side, the people, right, PE, and the NP side, the non-person entity side, the, the microservices or, or systems talking to other systems, which is, you know, so essential when you think of the modern uh, warfare of uh, JADC to join all domain command and control that the DoD is pushing to have, you know, kind of this... Uh, uh, Internet of Things of weapons connecting and talking and sharing data and pushing data and publishing, subscribing uh, to to events and and how do you do this securely, right? Without strong identities, short-lived, uh, certificate-driven for for NP, but then on the on the people side, of course, multi-factor authentication. But it, it's going beyond this now, of course, with the adoption of of labeling. Um, NIST is working on this publication of what they call the next generation access control NGAC, which is kind of the evolution of uh, ABAC, uh, attribute-based access control, and LBAC, labeling-based access control. And the, the next generation access control will start, you know, of course, mapping data and, and moving to data centricity and labeling data down to the cell level, and now mapping that to users and mapping these labels and enabling that uh, uh, granular access and, and segmentation of access to uh, the right data. And, uh, you know, for us, of course, in DoD, when you have classification levels and different need to know, very important to be able to do that down to the cell level so that what could be 
you know, secret rail and the, the who would be TSSCI and, and the mission partners with the NATO and, and other partners would only be able to see what they're supposed to see. That would be really the foundation of a modern, you know, 2022 and beyond uh, network uh, across, uh, you know, the mission partners. And that's kind of the, the big push that's been going on with the uh, mission partner environment, uh, part of the, uh, the Air Force office as executive agent for the, for the entire DOD. So um, let's start digging into um, some of the key components. You know, we we took a step back on the uh, on the tech stack of identity. I kind of introduced a little bit the the, the people and the the the, the computer uh, non person entity side. What what are you, you, your key components for a strong identity uh, stack? Uh, it's it's a big question, right? I, identity, as you pointed out, is really the center of everything. If you're going into that kind of zero trust landscape. The center of people, the center of non-people, non-carbon-based life forms, or I guess just car carbon processors as fair, uh, silicon and carbon processors. Um, but, you know, if we look at it and we start to say, okay, well, identity starts with a user. And it, even if it's a user performing a transaction on behalf of or a service performing a transaction on behalf of a user, right, it becomes fundamental to authenticate that user. And from that authentication, right, I have other things like KYC, know your customer, very popular for AML, anti-money money laundering, um, as well as, you know, in the EKYC that's coming out of the OIDF Foundation. You also have user data management, user preference management, and then we get into this big world, right, of um, a user privacy management. I'm sorry. We get into this big world of authorization. And authorization needs to take all of that data. And it needs to start to fundamentally discern what's important in that data, what's not in that data, what's not important, what else can we bring in? Meaning, is there an entitlement data store? Is there additional risk factors? Is there additional fraud engine, right, that I can bring forward? And start to use that to consume and perform appropriate authorization decisions past that authentication point. And from my perspective, you know, or even the industry perspective, what we're starting to see is the decoupling of those different things. And going back to your, your in introduction, right? You want all the all the keys to your kingdom, you know, stored in a SaaS, and the answer is probably not, right? Uh, meaning, you know, at least not your private keys. You know, maybe your data can be stored in a SaaS, but how do you access and unencrypt that data that's coming out of your users, of your privacy data, etc.? Right? I want to be able to own my own private keys, particularly if I'm in a heavily regulated or a very secure environment. Second part of that is, is like, what do I do with that data once I have it? And how can I continue to decouple all of these different functions? Uh, so we've got, you know, great SaaS platforms and great on-prem platforms, but they're, they're, they're really written, you know, from in the, in the 2000s, right? They're typically big Java apps, right, that have, we've, we've seen a lot of problems, whether it's Log4j or, <laughs> or Spring, right, just in the last 30 days that haven't been modernized the way that of platforms for our services, right, that the DOD, et cetera, is producing. And so there's this fundamental disconnect of how do I bring a, you know, kind of this big Java app into this microservices world? And the answer is I want to decouple. I want to start doing the same thing I'm doing to my big apps, right? Decomposing them, moving them into microservices uh, for my identity management stack. And that means I'm going to take the user management piece, the user authentication piece, the service authentication piece, the authorization, the governance piece. I'm going to create those as independent services, right? So I can start to deploy those as close as possible to my end services because edge computing, you know, Kubernetes, microservice, right? We all know that's the future of development. So the question is, how do I get that ICAM, that important data, all the way down to the edge of those services? So you just described kind of the, the massive tech that, 
right, of some of these companies, right? Mm -hmm. um, obviously being created way before microservices were a thing. Um, they have to decouple and cut their monolith into uh, smaller uh, bytes. And, and that's pretty much the same thing we have to do for many of the legacy exactly. systems. Um, so, so that's, you know, uh, a pretty big lift, you know, the, at the same time, I guess you see because of the, that gap, right. You've seen open source communities, uh, you're looking at, you know, Spiffy, Spire and many other things, you know, kind of take, take a stab at, at creating an identity management stack. You see, of course, multiple, uh, competitors, uh, also trying to build their own things. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we started in, in the platform one Air Force, uh, DevSecOps stack, you know, using Keycloak because it was open source and free, but big uh, Java uh, monolithic uh, tech stack and 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 pretty heavy and and pretty uh, uh, lots lots of CVEs, right? Uh, so a lot of cyber issues there. Um, so who are the top players? Obviously, you know, you're a little bit biased, like I am, but that's okay. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, obviously your competition, of course, you're you're one of them. But uh, who else is kind of uh, uh, waking up and starting to realize, you know, hey, we we need to to start doing this kind of decoupling, and and do do you see others just keeping their head in the sand and kind of um, not realizing that uh, this is a problem, and they, they keep delivering kind of this monolithic uh, outcome, and right. and what would be the the end goal of a, of an octa, you know, after after you get breached, and 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 I think that the, the way they they handled, you know, the um, the breach was not that great, you know. Um, uh, we still don't really know how bad it was. They they gave numbers, but uh, the the hackers kind of disputed that, and and they they made a lot of claims. You know, I'm I'm I guess I'm on the the Telegram chat, you know, where they they share a lot of uh, information, like many others, I'm sure. Uh, and and when you look, you look at the stuff that they describe, it seems uh, they could have done much more damage than you know going after 2.5 percent of the customer. Right. So. Who is kind of leading, other than you guys, I guess, uh, who is leading on the market right now? So if we took each of those categories I just laid out, right, and we said authentication. So authentication's always been one of those that's been a little bit broken out, right? So you've got like Hyper, TrueSona, um, you know, and, and about 265 other, you know, authentication <laughs> providers yeah. that do a really good job at strong authentication. Yeah. Uh, and I look is, at there those open source, is there an open source play there or is it just mostly commercial products? It depends on, you know, again, it depends on your company's uh, capability to both absorb as well as yeah. to support, right, the open source pieces. And so, yes, there's a, a lot of open source products out there that actually do things like WebAuthn um, that do a great job at it. But if you have, you know, more rigorous demands, you know, for example, lots of legacy applications you want to integrate into, things of that nature, right? The WebAuthn libraries coming from the open source community probably aren't going to do it for you. They're going to do an edge or kind of a proxy based authentication model. And then you're still yeah. trusting what's happening all the way down. Um, right. I mean, that's yeah, a fundamental. Well, I was never a big fan of that, that proxy. You know, people are always sending this in the DoD, setting it as a, as a zero trust, you know, construct. I, I just don't agree. I, I think it's great. I mean, it's a it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's, it's just not zero trust. So uh, I'm with you. But if we look at even the first Google pieces, right, for Beyond. Yeah, um, Beyond Co. Yep. Those, those are all proxy based, right? That was just like, yep. hey, we're going to push more proxies out and push them closer to the edge, which is great. Yeah, but they had, they had the device enforcement piece. You know, people dismiss right. it a lot, but they, they had the Chromebooks and they had the, 
UB keys on the device. I mean, they had a lot of additional things on the device that, that then people just forgot about and just, okay. oh, look, Google is doing the proxy stuff and they forgot about all the other stuff. They, they had a pretty stringent control of the device and the stuff they were doing there too. So, yeah. To totally agree with you. But, and that, and that builds kind of like, what does the whole ecosystem look like? And again, yep, taking yep. those individual components, right? If I look at what zero trust is, and I didn't, didn't think the conversation was necessarily going to go this way. But it's that's authenticating okay. and authorizing right everything that's in that transaction. It's the user that maybe made the request, the device they made yep. the request from, maybe the client yep. app that they logged into on their mobile phone. Uh, that client yep. app needs to authenticate up to the API gateway. The API gateway is then going to take that data, pass it back to different microservices, you know, and maybe in Kubernetes mm -hmm. or otherwise. And then authentication yep. authorization has to happen at each and every step of the way there. Right. The yep. model that we're currently built, you know, and this is just a widely adopted one is I authenticate once I have a long lived token. Right. And then I just kind of pass that data and the token around. I don't have any right. constraints or controls on those tokens. I'm just essentially right. blasting your PII and sharing it out to my different <laughs> partners, my different uh, All these customers, third parties, et cetera. And that's that's one of the problems we saw within you know, the Octa breach yep. is that, you know, third party had access. And they had, you know, unsolicited or you know, full access, I guess is a better way of saying it, yeah. um, to a number of potential partner accounts. Uh, and so how do you solve that? Do you, do you like, <laughs> do you put a, put a, a wall in front of the, you obfuscate, you encrypt, you, you don't, you, you let the user define what they end up sharing with those companies or? Well, yeah, yes, uh, but it, it's actually bigger than that, right? So it's moving from these long-lived tokens. And when I say long-lived, I mean 30, 60 minutes. That's a long-lived yeah. token. Yeah, moving yeah. To moving short to very short-lived tokens, meaning yeah. tens or hundreds of milliseconds. Oh, um, that, that's true. Okay. Yeah, because then, now you actually get to do different control types, right? right. Um, it's no longer, hey, I trusted you once, but oh, I'm going to re-verify everything that was in the in your initial token creation, right? When you authenticated, which is again probably your device. Um, you know, how did you authenticate? Was it biometrics? Am I willing to trust that for longer? All these different pieces, and I'm pulling that right. into the the authorization discussion because authentication is like this great point in time thing that happened once that we for for some reason have explicitly trusted, you know, for extended periods of time. You know, if we remember the yeah. Twitter breach, right? It was they were having they're publishing 90 day OAuth tokens. Um, and so being That's able to say, okay, I, 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 yeah, exactly. I did authenticate, but now I want to bring that time into a very short duration. And I actually like to look to open banking. I think open banking did a really good job at saying, Hey, here's a fundamental standard for how to secure APIs. It's called FAPI. It's part of the OAuth spec, but then I want to do what's called intent based lodging patterns, right? I know it's a mouthful to <laughs> specifically authorize and authenticate a user for a transaction, you know? transfer money. And I think that plays well into the DOD realm as well. You know, yeah. yes, I can get to the wikis without maybe a extensive authentication process, but as I get into finer grain things, I want to commit code into Git, or I want to do, uh, you know, more robust and more privileged activities within the infrastructure. Well, I need to start stepping up both the authorization capabilities as well as the short livedness of the tokens. And, and do, do you see that as an augmentation of the existing stacks, uh, meaning you know someone could have an existing identity stack and and and, and kind of build a, a product on top that would provide kind of this. So it, you have to rip and replace the entire stack. So uh, the, you, I don't think you rip and replace really ever in, in this day and age. You know, fortunately, twenty thirty years, right? We still have mainframes kicking around with uh, yep. you know rack F. Probably a lot, many more years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So there's no such thing as rip and replace, you know, for any modern enterprise. 
Um, and when I say modern enterprise, I mean somebody that's generated a profit and been around for longer than let's say five to seven years. So not, <laughs> because, so not, so not DOD. No, just kidding. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't um, do the profit yet for the wall fighter. <laughs> I need to see the return on investment for the taxpayer and the wall fighter. Anyway, <laughs> well, that's exactly right, right? We <laughs> want to see the value coming back on what we're, we're, we're spending and giving to the government. Um, yeah. But kind of getting back into that prior question. So there is no rip and replace, right? There is kind of this, and I hate to use the Microsoft language of embrace and extend, meaning I want to keep, you know, your data store. Okta is doing a great job managing users. You like the self-service capabilities there. That's fine, right? But maybe I don't want to use them for authentication. And I definitely can't use them capability-wise for, you know, short-lived tokens or for rich authorization uh, beyond that front door authentication process. So you have to be able to take that data. And again, this goes to the decoupling thought process. Right now, you know, I've got these big giant Java apps and whether it's Keycloak or, you know, some of the other major vendors in the space, you know, Ping Fordrock, you know, they've been around for 25 years. The code's 25 years old. They don't scale yeah. very well. And they've munged everything together because that was the the, pot, the the pattern, right? That was accepted. Yeah. And so as I break out maybe my OAuth service and I break out my authentication service and I break out my user management service, I can select different SaaS applications, right? Or even different um, open source or different products that I, you know, commercial products that I want to install within, you know, my, my enterprise to actually start to take care of those. So I can get best of breed again. And that's because mm -hmm. we're starting to use APIs to drive everything. And it's one of the great benefits as well as, you know, potentially a downfall of APIs, but we'll talk about that probably a little <laughs> later in this conversation. Yeah. And so question, you know, when it comes to the device piece, right, we talked a little bit about, I think it's so important for Zero Trust, right, to have a device identity, you know, assign keys to each device, both for personal devices and for enterprise managed devices, both on mobile, desktop, laptops, right? How, who, who do you think is leading when it comes to kind of doing, you know, what we call in DoD, I guess, comply to connect or device enforcement, whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, beyond just the basic proxy stuff, right? How do you, how do you enforce device state? Looking at your patching state, you know, do you have an endpoint protection stack installed? You know, anything you want to take a look at on the device? I know what we used um, in the department in terms of product, but I wanted to know what you think, uh, which company are kind of leading in on the device side? Well, that, that, that's a tough one, right? Because there's some SaaS yeah. companies as well as, you know, on device companies, um, mm -hmm. you know, and there's been a lot of acquisitions and mergers in that space. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I don't really want to point at one in particular because it would definitely yeah. show some favoritism. You know, but yeah. what I would be looking for if I was out looking for a device vendor manufacturer or a yep. device vendor um, protection platform, which is one, the catalog of the device, right? So it, it started off with device fingerprints, you know, pretty simple yep. to do, right? You're just looking at the HTTP request, what's coming over the wire. But it gives you some things, you know, you see resolution change, you see, uh, you know, font supported change, you can start to make some type of intelligent decisions. But that doesn't do anything for, you know, I jailbroke my device or right. you know, my device has been compromised in some manner. Right. So right. then you need an actual on system protection. Right. So you need an SDK that can talk to hopefully both the secure enclave within the device. Um, meaning store their, their private keys there, as well yeah. as also look at when that secure enclave is being being accessed. And so at that point, now you can start saying, okay, well, what else is out there? You know, are they mirroring my app? Are they doing, you know, do they clone my phone? Have they done different things to ensure that you no longer have the same level of vulnerability on that device as you may if it's just, you know, kind of random Joe in a BYOD uh, device scenario? Right. Um, do you think so it's a must have a client effectively? I mean... For me, I, I always felt, you know, without a client on the device, it's impossible 
to get to the full breadth of what you described. Is that a, a fair statement? That's 100% fair, right? Because you can't trust a device. That's that's for sure. Um, you know, whether I've just picked it up at Costco or whether I've had it for the last 20 years. As soon as right. that hits the network, that device has a very high likelihood of being at least attacked, if not compromised. Right. right. So it's kind of like that old old DOD saying, right? If it's not air gapped, it's probably going to be compromised. <laughs> Although even if it's air gap, you never know. But yeah, um, air gap, air gap is air gap, right? Uh, so looking at, uh, uh, I guess, your company, right? Do you provide uh, device enforcement stuff, or that's something that you uh, partner with others? That's something we partner with others. Um, so we, we, you know, we can do very simple things, device profiling, which, you know, it's essentially free at this point. It's very commoditized um, yeah. to make sure that nothing changed in that device from the first time we saw the token. But, it's you know, for any of the to, is, that, is that fair to say that's pretty easy to, uh, to obfuscate or to at least uh, fake if it's uh, not absolutely. a client? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I, I personally wouldn't trust it for my security route. You know, yeah. it's a nice kind of also have. To, um, yeah. But it, it's definitely not something you're going to feel better really. a little bit, but uh, not already. Yeah, I don't. I don't even think I'd say that. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe. maybe right. I think it's more <laughs> like okay, that's a nice. You know, there's a value there, right? You know, it's a signal. But yeah. you know, as we all know, like cyber is about signals, right? And how how many mm -hmm. signals can I get? How well do those signals match? What can I do with that signal? And then how can I parlay that into an actual decision? So did you end up integrating with several companies or you just pick one or two or what's the division there? So what, what, what we've done is, you know, we've created a very rich um, data access layer. We call it the identity hub and that identity hub so can go out. To that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we just pull data from whatever you have in place. Again, going back to is not a rip and replace. It's what can I do with what I have to make the best possible intelligence decisions for what's going on? Yeah, that makes sense. All and right. So, so that I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Uh, so ahead. we have pre-built integrations with things like RSA, um, right. with pieces coming out of Okta, with what was coming out of Silence uh, and CrowdStrike. So we can take that information and build risk profiles based off of it as part of the authorization decision. Interesting. So I know the, the next big pedal, right? Uh, moving to like modern uh, ICAM is, is ready authorization. And uh, first... Most people don't actually understand, I believe, uh, the difference, right, between authentication and authorization. Can you explain, like, in two words for Mr. Everybody, like, what's the difference between the two? Authentication, I'm sorry, authorization is what happens after authentication. That's that's as simple as you can think about it. When I, Whenever <laughs> I go beyond, I authenticated to my device, right, first thing I access, whether it's the client, uh, client service on my device or whether it's, you know, browsing to, you know, Salesforce. I have to get authorization right to enter there. So if, if people say, well, you know, do you think, and I know the answer, but I'm just asking, you know, on mm -hmm. purpose, but um, for multi-factor authentication, MFA as a process, that's part of authentication, not authorization, right? Right. So this really post that MFA process and the whole shebang that, you know, authorization is now going to define effectively it's an enforcement point that's going to define what you get access to and and is it is it kind of do, do you decouple the the, the 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 kind of policy as code that defines what you get access to and the enforcer side well let, let's take one step back first right because because <laughs> once i authenticate right and I, I just picked up my phone i authenticate in you know whether it's face id or otherwise now mm -hmm. 
first authorization is, you know, can I actually connect, right? It's a, you know, a layer four, essentially, you know, can I actually connect yeah. up to other services, right? And then mm -hmm. it starts to build on that up through the different OSI model layers, right? Or, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, different TCP layers. And, um, and it ranges all the way from, you know, can I, uh, can, can I actually access this service or can this service talk to another service? all the way up to, you know, what did I as a user consent to sharing with this service that can be shared with third-party services? And again, this goes back to, you know, the, the Okta issue, right? It's third-party right. service out there without tight authorization controls. Well, once they get in, it's almost you know, free reign. All that lateral movement is available to them. They can go from service to service to service, or in this case, organization to organization to organization, right? Pull that data back, uh, set up additional admin accounts, things of that nature to consume and to create long lived breach potentials. So, you know, I, I had a question, you know, of course you mentioned the fact that, Hey, you know, if you store data somewhere and you keep the, the private keys, you, you at least you're, you're securing your data. But if mm -hmm. you also uh, use a SaaS service to do the enforcement and the control plane of identity management, effectively that software that's going to say, yes, you can access this or no, you cannot access this. If that software is tempered, right. And someone, manage to effectively change the, the, the way it's going to allow access to things, despite not having access to the data, you could still get in trouble because that control plane is owned and, and effectively the, the process of authentication and authorization could be in some way bypassed, right? Yeah, in, in some ways it can be munged together, right? But, but again, if you think about authorization is, is defining the who, what, where, why, when, right? And pulling all mm -hmm. as many signals together as possible. Not all of those signals are going to come directly from that IDP, right? They're not all going to come from the Okta paying for drugs to the world, right? They're going right. to come from local entitlement databases, Akamai, right? Your device, um, you know, your device management software. And all of that needs to come together, right? To have the successful authorization decisions as you access different services, different accounts, uh, different capabilities within the DOD or within your organization. But a lot of these companies are starting to sell the decision points as part of their packages, right? They want to sell you the, the whole shebang. So, so would you be cautious hosting kind of the decision point things, uh, whatever you want to call that, uh, on, on a multi-tenant shared SaaS service? Because if that's compromised, that's that's a big deal, right? It it's a huge deal, right? And so, I, my personal opinion is is that that's extraordinarily scary. Um, and you know, to to help obviate that concern, right? What do I need to do? Well, I need to start to move both the policy decision points as well as the policy enforcement points into my local infrastructure. But I need to do this anyways, right? Because as I think about how applications are being built today, right? They're being assembled. They're now no longer being kind of just hard coded. I'm stacking APIs from you know different vendors and trying to push all these things together into an application. What's happening with each of those? Is I'm making external or internal calls, right, to access different data points. And I want to authorize each and every one of those to make sure I don't have the wrong data, and to make sure I'm not sharing the wrong data. So where does that need to live? If I make that, if I have that in a centralized cloud service, what happens? Well, my, my distributed service is making a call each and every time to get the freshest data that it can. Extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily slow. So what I need to do is start to have those policy decision and policy enforcement points co-located with my services. Uh, there's, you know, some great patterns within Istio and Kubernetes, you know, the sidecar model. 
Um, and there's also you know, great ways and, and great scalability in being able to push out these different policies down to my distributed services. So I can now take those services and I can also push them anywhere. Right. Yeah. Because it's no longer about, you know, I've got a centralized infrastructure. It's that I want to be multi-cloud. And as I think about edge, uh, I want to actually be disconnected intermittent. Yep. Exactly. I mean, in the battlefield, right, I've got millions of edge devices. Um, so I want to push that data all the way out or push that authorization decision criteria all the way out to that edge device and then see real time tokens being minted about what data can be accessed. How can it be shared? Let's make sure that it's not compromised, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that effectively means that all the um, the way we also architect those uh, components of the uh, control plane of the identity management enforcement stack, that 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 is a piece that also should be treated as cattle, meaning, you know, uh, kill it, go back to immutable state. So if a malicious actor right got access to some of this stuff, uh, that goes back, you know, to zero every four hours, whatever. So so like the notion of, of hosting this, Potentially as a short-lived, you know, container, and 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 just enforcing that moving target defense. That's mm -hmm. a pretty good uh, principle, right? For for this yeah. stuff. Exactly, and and fundamentally, right? Well, that's what we're doing under the covers, right? I see a new service get instantiated in any of your major service meshes, Kubernetes, etc., or functions, FAS platforms, right? I see that service. Do I recognize that service? Yes or no. If I don't, if I recognize it, let me push policies that are relevant to that service down to it. Mm -hmm. If I don't recognize that service, let me at least give it a baseline level of policies. And let's also inspect and make sure that it's a service we should be talking to. Does it have the appropriate X509 cert from, you know, Spiffy, Spire, uh, or other, um, you know, other X509 based uh, providers? Yeah. Do, do you guys did some work with uh, Spiffy and Spire with your company? I, I've been fortunate enough to be uh, working on, in that working group. Uh, for yeah. the past couple of years, I've been less active lately, um, but it's it's a great technology. You know, hands hands off to the team that have been been working on it. Um, they're now mostly at HP, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, you know, I saw that. Sunil will be successful um, there as well. And so, yes, we, we've been working with it. We actually look at Spiffy Spire as being you know, part of the underlying infrastructure, right? As I see new services spin up, they need an identity. They absolutely must have one, particularly in in more sensitive environments. What's the best way to give them one? Well, service provider identity for everything, Spiffy. And so how can we take that then and, and take that Spiffy identity and actually parlay that into what we think of as an OAuth client identity, even for backend services. Now use that as that condiment federation protocol, right? So I can go across namespaces, so I can go across uh, clouds. So I'm no longer limited to my very narrow, you know, service mesh or Kubernetes namespace, or even to Kubernetes and service meshes. But I can start to carry that Spiffy ID coupled with an OAuth client ID out to every service everywhere. Yeah, that's huge. And you know, a lot of people ask on the on the on Twitter, um, so I can bring it up on the screen. But they, they ask, hey, you know, um, and and that's my opinion that you know we're moving away from OAuth more to OpenID and and all that kind of stuff. Is that a fair statement to say if companies were to start you know uh, implementing uh, stuff today, they should look into OpenID more so than uh, OAuth, or what's what's winning, I guess. But yeah, it's o OIDC and OAuth are the fundamental protocols for your modern uh, IAM platform. And if you have to pick between the two, which one wins today? Well, I don't think there's there's no IDC. Yeah, there's yeah there's there's not there's not any real competition for them, right? OIDC is like how did I authenticate and at least my profile data coming down and what mm -hmm. we think of as an identity token. OAuth yeah. takes over from there, 
uh, for distributed, excuse me, distributed delegated authorization. I see. And then OAuth has been actually doing lots and lots of works in the standards bodies, bringing things like rich authorization requests forward, yeah. or even an OAuth grant spec. So I can start to do fine-grained authorization, right, at my OAuth service, as opposed to even trying to embed it or hard-code it into my app. I see. So you decouple all that too. Correct. Interesting. Uh, all right. So let's go to the next piece of the meat, right? Uh, obviously, we talked a little bit about the Okta breach. Um, I believe there's a lot of lessons learned, including on how not to manage a breach for a company. But uh, what what are your, uh, I guess, lessons learned? And, and what do you see your customers learning from that breach? Well, there, there's a lot of lessons learned, right? There, there's a myriad of them. I mean, fundamentally, I think there's a couple key ones, right? First, you hit on communication. Um, the second one is, excuse me. <clears throat> the second one is third-party access. Um, in particular, you know, who am I trusting with the other, with, with access into my platform, particularly with elevated privileges? Yeah, don't read the stuff. I'm just putting stuff on the screen. No yeah, it's okay. No, no, no problem. <laughs> just <Yeah. can't. laughs> I know it's distracting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, who, who, who am I trusting, right? So all of the third parties and whether they're third parties, uh, platforms, you know, like Octo that were, you know, call center style platforms, or whether yeah. those are third party SaaS companies, right? That I'm actually communicating saying, hey, I'm just going to deliver text messages over Twilio, right? I am sharing sensitive data with them each and every time. And one of the big things that we've seen is that, you know, companies have no idea what APIs they have, right? Um, and I, I'm not sure if this is true in the DoD. I'm going to presume not, but uh, you know, but the CISO has no idea what the developers are doing. And oftentimes, yeah. the developers want to say finish a product. They don't remember necessarily what they are doing. So there's all of these mm -hmm. APIs that are picking out there that might be rogue, that might be shadow, that might be you know mm -hmm. totally compliant, but they're not appropriately uh, itemized, cataloged, and protected. And that's a big yeah, thing. So, and, so API discovery and, and kind of asset management stuff, right? Correct. Right. So so that's a, that's a big part because I'm sharing sensitive data all the time via APIs, right? If we look at the statistics, what is it? 88% of internet traffic now is is machine to machine. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's an API. That's a service to service call that should be using, mm -hmm. you know, OAuth and bringing that data or using OAuth to both authenticate and authorize, you know, what data is flowing across that transaction. Right. So that, that would be the second big thing. The third big thing, <laughs> you know, um, is going to be how do I uh, how do I mitigate, you know, what just happened? Um, and, and this is where I think it goes back to the first one, which is the communication aspect. How do I actually communicate effectively with what's going on? If we look at the the Octa breach, right there, I think they were notified uh, by their third party provider and January twentieth time frame of a potential breach. Yeah, that was a long, long time. Maybe yeah, two it was months. a big lag, right? Sixty days or so uh, over yeah. what occurred, and then you know when did the research start, and how did we actually get into and find out you know what may or may not have have happened. Um, and even since so, the the research was pretty basic, and they didn't realize kind of the how bad it was, in my opinion. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. all these just lied. Either way, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, based on what I saw from the leaked Mandiant report, I am definitely in your camp on that one. Um, mm -hmm. because I, th I think there's, there are some very, some very simple things, right? Like downloading, uh, <laughs> downloading things from GitHub, downloading hacker tools from GitHub, um, you know, that are designed to compromise from the compromised, um, machines, right? Oh, so yeah. some things that kind of should have surfaced, 
should have been accessed, should have been noted by you know different security personnel and ensuring that you know exactly what 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 was happening and does it warrant further inspection? And yeah. you know, I think that was missed on both the third party provider, but that bubbles up, right? Because you're taking, you know, as Octus take responsibility by using that third party provider, the sure. onus ends up falling on them. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's their product, right? Yeah. They can they can hide behind the bodies as much as they want, but right. that doesn't play. Yeah. I don't think anyone cares. In fact, most people don't even know the name of the provider, right? So uh, they they hide it. I mean, people think of Okta as a breach, not uh, the third party provider. So, and then of course the the management of the uh, you know the the press and and, and kind of the uh, notification of the the customer wasn't wasn't great. Agreed. A lot of people didn't even know if they were part of the the two point five percent customers impacted or not for a long time, and and, and people even debate whether you know the two point five percent was just like a test from the hackers to see what they could do, but if they didn't have a kind of a super admin account anyway, which effectively means they could have, you know effectively hacked every customer <laughs> which you know when you when you go and say oh don't worry only 2.5 percent of the customers were impacted that sounds pretty good right i mean that sounds like oh whatever right but but the question is were they only impacted because the hacker didn't want to impact them <laughs> you know yeah. and he could have that's a whole different story right and that's kind right. of the issue with multi-tenants right well i, I look at it like 2.5 percent of ten thousand plus customers that's yeah, still that's a, big a lot number, of customers right first. yeah and and what happens once those if they are indeed breached right now those people have to look at, hey, we're third-party service providers to however many other customers that could or could not be Okta customers. Um, yeah, so it really, it really could be federated and using, and then you have, what if the 2.5% is some of the duty customers, right? Yeah, well, agreed, right? And I, I think that's really where the interconnectedness, right? And whether we talk about it as APIs or we talk about it as federation really becomes so imperative, right? And being able to quickly mm -hmm. notify as well as quickly stop exactly what's transpiring. Again, moving into things like very short-lived tokens. And if you start to see these cyber signals, like, hey, this guy just made a request from this uh, compromise or potentially compromised machine uh, out to GitHub for hacking tools, well, maybe we should shut down that machine, right? No more RDPs, yeah. no, more, uh, no more transactions coming in from it. And mm -hmm. that's an authorization problem. But but if if we're moving to the the new paradigm of of you know cycle uh, containers and all the stuff we talked about in terms of ability to decouple and and scale and 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 uh, have better cyber principles and all this good stuff, why do we still need to use a SaaS service? Why wouldn't you just go all in and just you know host the control plane on some? cluster on multiple cloud if people are, are going to run kubernetes all over the place anyways which is pretty much what's happening right in fact you know a lot of banks and healthcare companies are moving away from hosted you know uh, paths to to their own clusters on the cloud i'm not saying don't use the cloud right but right, uh, right. It, it's it's just uh, often multi-cloud so now you have multiple regions multiple clouds kubernetes acts as, a, as an abstraction layer so you, you can effectively have more resiliency self-healing auto-scaling across nodes and clouds. Mm -hmm. uh, the application doesn't have to know it's running on Amazon Azure and, and Google and whatever, right? So Correct. why wouldn't people just go all in and take products that can be deployed on Kubernetes anywhere and not have to deal with the multi-tenant risk? Why, why would you take such a risk? I mean, I get the convenience for smaller companies and maybe, you know, uh, a bakery or whatever, right? But, but for, um, you know, healthcare 
finance, duty. Why would someone be okay giving the keys to the to the crown jewels? You know, fu fundamentally, it's about efficiency, right? Yeah. Your developers may or may not know OIDC and OAuth, right? In fact, you know, I think we see, you know, major. But what if they still pay? What if they still pay a company and the company brings it on your premises? Right? I'm not saying like build your own okay, stuff. Okay, got right? it. Uh, but no, don't host it as a multi-tenant, right? So bring it. You know, pay pay the support, right? I'm not saying like you know waste your time building the stuff. No, no way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but why wouldn't everybody push that on-prem? I see so many companies still not support, in fact, on-prem. You see Atlassian, right? We'll talk a little bit about Atlassian today, but Atlassian pushing people to move off of their on-prem stuff and go to the SaaS, and then the SaaS has an issue, and you have dozens of customers without, without a, the Atlassian suite for two weeks because they can't fix it uh, right. fast enough, yeah. and now you're trusting them to run the, their own product, and apparently they don't even know how to do that. Um, so how, you know, why would we not have the support on our stuff? Patching is a, is a big one, right? This is one, one of the reasons we kind of moved into that SaaS, right? Is just, yeah, but if everything is cattle and self-update, self-heal, right? Within well, that, I mean, GitOps, if the company is, is not 20 years behind and with 20 years of tech debt, mm -hmm. and they have the modern, you know, <laughs> microservices, all that stuff, right? Why wouldn't we just do that, right? I, I agree with you, but you'll have to point me to the the, the company, you know, that company again, that's older that. than 10 years old, right? <laughs> that is all yeah. entirely on Kubernetes because it's, yeah. I just don't, I don't find them very often, you know, maybe Netflix, right. you know, you know, companies that have been very modern from their inception and have really been. But even if, you, even if you're not entirely on Kubernetes, you could host the, the, the ICAM stack on you, Kubernetes and then no more apps, right? Could access that as a service. Agreed. You, you absolutely could. I mean, your entire stack has to be containerized, right? But we're, we're also moving now back in into like that appliance model, right? That right. was super popular in the mid 2000s. And in fact, I'm seeing it happen a lot in the security industry where we're going to give you a container, just run this in Kubernetes. Um, right. And, you know, from what I have seen, there's not tons of expertise of Kubernetes, right, in the industry. Yes, yeah. there are, you know, there's, there's 1% or whatever the number is, people that kind of understand it and can make it work. Uh, but mm -hmm. everybody's using managed Kubernetes because they just can't find the in-house expertise and the training hasn't been right. So I love that. It's a ton on issue, I guess. Yep. So so could it happen? Yes. Will it happen? Probably. Um, is it happening now? It's Not really. Not talents. Right. And, and the other thing is, is once I'm giving you all this software to run in Kubernetes, that software can have its own issue, needs its own patching, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. So I, I'm, I'm kind of back to the same problem. And I actually really worry when I see people saying, hey, I'm just getting essentially a container, or a, a, an appliance, right, that I'm going to run in my Kubernetes namespace and it needs access to all my central services. And it's like, OK, I mean, I get it, but mm -hmm. I have I have a different risk vector. I'm just kind of moving right. this risk problem around. Um, right. I mean, the, the, the manuscript code stuff and the, you know, update process is a problem regardless where you put it. Right. Uh, whether right. it's a SaaS. On the SaaS, I would argue you have less visibility, though, because you completely trust. In fact, my bet is Atlassian is pushing for the SaaS version because the CVs are so bad that they, they are tired of delivering containers on-prem because people freak out. I remember as a CSO, I was in very heated conversation with Atlassian with the number of 1,400 CVEs on Jira and Confluence alone. And and their take was, oh, it's just you know mitigated in ways that we couldn't even validate because we don't have access to the source code. But, you know, 
and how convenient it is now to push a SaaS service of Atlassian, because guess what? You have zero visibility on the CVs of the software. You, you run a service. You, you have no clue uh, what's the state of their cybersecurity. You trust their SaaS pretty much as mm -hmm. a customer. Versus if you host it, you're going to do some due diligence. You, you can also have some additional cyber capability that could mitigate some of the risk you're taking by hosting these containers. You could mitigate the lateral movement right, using zero trust. You could uh, potentially have behavior detection, looking at exfiltration of data, right? Uh, continuous monitoring with prevention uh, capabilities, like the twist lock of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So you could have a lot of different things to kind of at least be alerted. But if you're on a SaaS, look at the customers, right, of, of Okta. Two months later, they didn't know what was right. going on. Uh, if you have a decent cyber poster, at the very least, you could have at least be aware much sooner than that. Right, so so you're giving away a lot of trust to these these companies when you host that kind of Chrome jewel, both for the the zero trust enforcement side, the identity management side, the GitOps, you know, so, hosting your source code repo to a multi-tenant uh, tech stack is a big risk. Uh, you know, the GitHub and GitLab of the world on the .com, you know, hosted SaaS side, um, it's it's pretty scary. If that get hacked, uh, good luck, right? Right. Yeah, crown jewels are gone right away, right? Everybody knows where things are. Um, and, and there's not even very good security through obscurity, right? So it's kind and of- And if you're small companies, you become targeted because of the bigger guys, mm -hmm. right? So so now you inherit additional risk that you would not have, uh, at least maybe not the same kind of, you know, threat actors going after your services, right? With the same amount of energy and time and, and investment, right? And, and you could you stop things at the either Kubernetes ingress controller or potentially a firewall that comes in beforehand, right? That may or may not right. be uh, what your SaaS company has deployed. And I think this goes back and to be the contrary in the conversation, I'll just argue the opposite side. Yeah. I'm more in agreement than I'm not. Uh, you know, if I, if I look at you know, point two on the Okta breach, right? It's how do you trust your third parties, right? And whether it's Okta, mm -hmm identity management or as you're sure. pointing out what well, it's me pushing up sales opportunities into salesforce sending text messages through twilio right we're assembling these applications so how do i start to know exactly how data is moving have appropriate authentication authorization yeah. and audit for each yeah. of those different you know subroutines that are running in my assembled application and mm -hmm. opto you know easy to pick at right because it happened recently and you know it's, there's there's definitely some crown jewels there but right you're leaking sensitive data, you know, each and every time you're making these API calls. You know, we've had customers say, hey, not only do we know what APIs we have, we don't know what's in those APIs. And even when we go out and query other people's APIs, we get data that comes back that we don't own, right? Meaning, hey, we're supposed to get your first name, last name, and you gave us all of your account data, right? Because their yeah. APIs are doing the job. Like, and once it hits my service, well, what am I, my developer do with it? Well, they might dump it in the syslog, or they might put it over in the sim, or they might even communicate it to another service. And that's one of the reasons, right, that authorization really becomes this critical construct in this cloud native world, because I'm not going to be able to stop these integrations, right? My developer is going to yeah. do what's fastest, what's easiest, you know, what gets the job done. Uh, and the chaos always comes before the organization, right? So we're still in this chaos phase where we're building things as quickly as possible. Now, how yeah. do I make sure that I'm not creating liabilities for myself? How do I authorize both the data going out from my services, as well as authorizing the data that my service queried for coming into my service? And that's authorization from are the right data elements there? You know, are the right cyber signals there for allowing the transaction? Mm -hmm. Did the user authenticate properly before performing this transaction on, through a service? 
uh, all the way down to did that user consent to sharing that data with these different services. And again, how I, much I mean, of I that is like that. manual, you know, policy stuff or like signatures or settings versus behavior AI driven? Uh, I missed the first part of your question. I'm sorry. How, how much of that is 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 you know more manual policy CS code and and kind of settings and and whitelisting, manual whitelisting and things like that versus like automated, you know, AI driven uh, behavior detection stuff that will allow the, the traffic to flow? So good question. So finding your APIs, profiling your APIs, as well as the queries, right? Mostly automated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Creating policies that's going to typically get stemmed out. Well, you have, you have a couple different types of policies. Let me take one step back, right? So I might have GDPR, CCPIA, NIST, AAL level policies, right? That are kind of my mm -hmm. fundamental baseline that I know I yep. want everybody in my organization or every developer in my organization to adhere to. Now, as I get further down into that, maybe I, as a, as a company, am posting a SaaS, a multi-tenant SaaS, right? And I'm sharing data out to different customers. Now I need to get very explicit, right? When I'm acting as this user, as an admin in this org, what are the entitlements that I may or may not have? And that's really where things get critical and get very complicated. That's much more of a static you know, policy setting because it's tough to discover, discern, understand. Um, whereas some of the broader pieces, what do my baseline policies look like? You know, where are my APIs? What kind of data do they have? Uh, something that can be very automated. Now, what yeah. can also be automated is the net results from all of that, right? As I look at all of these different transactions, you know, is, are things going bad? Are they going well? You know, somebody doing, you know, business DDoS attacks? Are they trying to parlay different information into my access points? Um, uh, and then how do I actually adjust my policies on behalf of that? So am I seeing things happen that look potentially nefarious? How do I respond, react, et cetera? Yeah, very cool. Uh, I guess, you know, all this is showing kind of a different level of maturity between companies implementing all these tools, right? Uh, if you look at the potential of the tools today to do this kind of stuff, and you look mm -hmm. at the actual implementation from the, the customers, how many customers are even remotely close to doing something that advanced versus just barely struggling with the ABC of, of security of, of identity management? So most customers aren't actually that advanced, right? And, and again, going back to my, my earlier statement, right? What we found is that the vast majority of companies don't know what APIs they have, right? Yeah. So as we go back to that, um, you know, the question is, how do I take that data? How do, how do I actually get, get my arms around, you know, the visibility aspect? I'm sorry, I've got a, I've got a, an attendee who's home sick school. Say hi. <laughs> um, kid, kid. Thank you. <laughs> he's, he's at home with a stomach ache today. <laughs> oh, that's not fun. Um, so, so uh, you know, to your, I, I just lost your question. I'm sorry. No, no, the, the, I, I guess I lost the question too. But we were talking about the maturity of the, the customers. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. most companies don't know, can't get their arms around their APIs, right? Even north, south, much less east, west. Yeah. Um, so being able to bring in like a rich catalog of what data is out there, uh, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, what APIs are out there, north, south, and east, west, and then what data are those different APIs sharing, right? That becomes like mm -hmm. that critical first step. You know, from there, right. you can start building the authorization policies and starting to build that feedback loop on, you know, what do the law audit logs look like, you know, for um, the results of these different authorizations. Yeah, very cool. You're making a use case for one of the company I'm on the board of 
you know, traceable AI. That the, the whole mm -hmm. thing is the API discovery stuff. And I did not ask you to, to do that. So this is, this is <laughs> I guess it was a good. Uh, good well, it's fun. it's it's an important part, right? Just because there's 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 nothing happening, or there's there's not a lot happening there, and it's a huge fundamental yeah. problem. And it's like it's it's going back to you know what you don't know and what you know. So uh, mm -hmm. how do you protect something you don't know? It's kind of the ABC of, of cyber, right? Exactly. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the differences between NP and P, right? The people versus uh, uh, systems. Um, what do you say? What What would you say in terms of implementation of, of the implementation of identity management? What is different between people versus what, what? You know, of course, you know, with people, we worry about the device they're using and things like that. What is What is different when you think of security and ICAM and authorization and all that kind of stuff between people and, and systems? Oh, I mean. They're just fundamental difference. Fun, fundamental differences on how you authenticate, right? If we think about two yeah. factors: something you have, something you know, right? Or MFA, mm -hmm. uh, something you have, something you know, uh, and even something you are, right? And I take them, kind of break those down and cross across the PE versus the NPE, right? Yeah. It's really easy to understand how that fits into the PE world, right? Okay, I'm Nathan. Um, you know, I have a password, and uh, you know, my heart beats it in this pattern, right? For biometrics <laughs> authentication. Uh, when I start to say, well, how do I apply those same kind of precepts to NPEs and whether that's an IoT NPE, whether it's a function, you know, whether it's a, a Kubernetes um, service, yep, yep, right? Yep. I, I got I need to do the same thing because I need to authenticate and authorize and make sure that my developers aren't putting something that you know may or may not be uh, nefarious out there or even accidentally nefarious. Um, so how do I actually start to say, OK, the code checked in was good, right? Because it needs to start all the way at the very beginning. The access patterns coming from that code out to you know, different uh, different platforms, third-party providers is good. Um, I'm actually allowed to spin up this code in this relevant namespace, right, or on this pod. And then how, then I'm going to authorize access to this service, right, that I'm spinning up on the right pod with the right checked-in code, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of follow that entire supply chain of exactly what needs to transpire to spin this service, this pod up. <laughs> And so uh, saying, okay, I can, I can have something I know. Like, do I, do I recognize it? You know, should, should, did this user have access to Kubernetes to actually spin this up? But then, you know, is it the right, um, you know, is, it the, do it, is, there, is there a secret there, right? And I think this is where, well, this is where Spiffy is designed to kind of come forward. I've yeah. got X509 V3 cert. Great. Let's keep, continue to move that forward. And then the third piece, right, the biometrics, right, is this, what happened to the supply chain? Was there a signature, you know, when the user checked it in? Um, or when the developer, I'm sorry, checked it in, how do I parlay that all the way up into um, that service is now allowed to spin up? And then how do I control who's allowed to access that service as an admin versus what other machines are allowed to access that service on behalf of additional users? Yeah. How much do you, do you train your uh, kind of educate your kids on, on all that kind of stuff? Are you, are you <laughs> already, uh, you know, I'm trying, of course, my kids all uh, under three. So it's uh little bit harder but uh are you are you spending some time trying to educate uh, your kids in in it actually i try to my kids are pretty young and i try to keep them off screen um yeah in general. so you know i've got uh eight and a three-year-old and yeah. um you know being able to you know control um you know what they look like authorize them you know when when they're allowed <laughs> to watch tv versus not watch tv um you know is, is really important um you know, they, I think a lot of IT really comes from how, do, how are you thinking, right? 
you know, yeah. meaning going back to the old developer uh, question, right, that we all learned in comp science, you know, what are the steps for making a peanut butter jelly sandwich? Um, so being able to understand, like, how does the world work and how can you put these different things together? You know, when do I open the jar? When do I pull the knife out? Uh, you know, and, and when, how do I spread it on my bread really becomes a fundamental part of you know, education for kids. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, all right. We have one more question for me before we go to the public question. So, um, you know, we talked, um, you and I before about open policy agent OPA, right? which is also right. part of the uh, CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Uh, tell us a little bit about what is OPA. Most people don't really know why, why it matters and, and what it is. So uh, OPA is, um, is, a, is a pretty cool open source project, right? That was part of the CNCF and uh, went from incubator to, uh, I forgot the next step. It's totally slipped on my mind right now. Oh, um, yeah, uh, I'll find out, but keep talking. About <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's really about having distributed enforcement points, and then having a net new policy language. And that net new policy language is called Rego. Uh, Rego graduated. is a, Graduated, I think. I think it's oh, graduated, graduated. Yes. graduated. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that yeah. policy language is called Rego. Uh, Rego is, is like a program language. It's almost like JavaScript, although it's not, I, in my opinion, it's not it's quite. It's a painful one. It's a painful one, okay? Let's just. You didn't want to dive one. too deep into that. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of companies out there working hard to give education on, on, on Rego. Yes. And building UI and, and trying to make it a little bit uh, easier, right? Correct. And um, I mean, OPA, OPA is very powerful. You know, we use OPA and support OPA uh, fully as well as support other policy languages, um, in particular JavaScript and JSON object policies. Uh, mm -hmm. But, it, you know, it's becoming a widely adopted, you know, pseudo standard because it's an open source tool. And it, I don't think there's been a formal standards body wrapped around it yet. Yeah. Um, but all of that kind of works together to create a distributed way of doing declarative uh, authorization policies and having distributed um, policy enforcement points that are now pushed out to the edge of your services. And it does it really scale? You know, some people were concerned about the Rego stuff and, and the OPA stuff. And we're saying, hey, you know, maybe that works for 10,000 policies. But if you have 4 million users, good luck with that. Is that a true? Is that not true? True. So it kind of depends on what you're doing with it, right? So yeah. um, one of the things that, that OPA does well, right, is, is scaling for policy enforcement. And I want to be very clear when I use, you know, use the language. But scaling for policy decision is a little bit different because they need to have the, the appropriate uh, data there, right, to scale for that policy decision. And in this case, you know, if I'm doing that at the edge of my service and I'm doing it from multiple services that are all serving up, you know, my, my web server or, you know, uh, my, my functions, that gets very expensive because I'm making these queries from Rego up to those different data sources. And yes, while the data is fresh, that's great. But being able to go and query from every independent microservice or IoT device or whatever I'm using, uh, protecting with my open agent, right, extraordinarily expensive. Um, so it, it's OPA that's, you know, when it's coupled with things like OAuth, where and using, and more specifically, OAuth RAR, where I'm controlling what data is actually coming down to OPA. And then OPA is allowed to use Rego-based policies, right, to govern access control down to the underlying functions within your service. So that they, they can work hand-in-hand, hand, absolutely. And I think it builds a, a very good model for companies building, uh, you know, their next generation of, of services. Yeah, very cool. All right. So for people that don't know, they should, they should take a look at what OPA is and does. And there's a lot of training online now, so a little bit easier than it was two years ago. So we got a few questions from the, the public here, so we'll take that. Um, 
now. Um, so Cameron was asking, what's the best practice approach to combine uh, credential sources into the identity so that the uh, session level authorization is fully informed that the policy, the, the, uh, the policy determine PDP, whatever, policy def, uh, policy decision, decision point uh, to allow or deny access. So, you know, uh, the best data is the freshest data, right? That's, that's a simple way of thinking about it. Uh, however, yeah. you know, as we know, lots of times, you know, Active Directory, data stores, et cetera, won't scale enough, right, to, to query at the millions or mm -hmm. tens of thousands of transactions per second or even hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. So being able to aggregate that, you know, at a front door in the same way we used to do authentication really becomes a critical mm -hmm. part of the overall um, usage pattern. Uh, and so what, what that means, right, is actually being able to aggregate, right, as the first time we see that access token or that item, say that OIDC token, um, be able to go out and say, I need additional data from X, Y, and Z, and then map that into both the access patterns. Again, following the open banking uh, pieces, I'm going to go to the transfer account and I want to authorize transfer of you know, $10,000. Well, now I want to actually go and, act and refresh that data for the most sensitive transactions I have and bring those back and make my authorization decisions at the edge of the yeah. service. That makes sense. So fresh, fresh data. And so you have no choice but to to somewhat cache it or at least bring it um, to some other capacity because of the limitation of the IDP, right? So that's that's just part of the puzzle. Well, and, and the reality is, is most of your data won't come from the IDP, right? The right. IDP has, you know, your user profile data, things of that nature. Important, don't get me wrong. Uh, in fact, critical, right? <laughs> Particularly as we think <laughs> yeah. about how are we authenticating using. And they also bring things like, you know, an ACR record. How did that user authenticate? Um, and so they're able to bring that bit of detail, but then you also need to augment that, right? Because I want the cyber signaling. I want to know, hey, did this user actually perform a SQL injection attack, right? Or, or something mm -hmm. else nefarious that, that's coming from Akamai or coming from, uh, you know, Imperva. And then I want to know device data, right? Have we have, how, how much do we trust this device, right? Do they have a local client, right? That's looking for jailbreaking, et cetera, et cetera. And then is there an existing entitlement store, right? That's our, this application is already leveraging. Well, I want to bring that data back as well. And I want to do this at very, very high speeds because I want to do, do individual tokens for individual transactions. And that's one of the things that we focused on right from the get-go is like, how can we start to take OAuth, which can scale massively, However, because of the way it's been integrated right into some of the legacy um, IDPs out there, it doesn't scale massively or it isn't scaling massively. So, you know, we were fortunate enough to sign our first customer and they wanted to do um, scale up to a billion and to 1.2 billion uh, NPEs and PEs. And they needed wow. to do hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. And so we, we said, hey, you know what, let's we got to start this in a different manner. We want to bring in. Um, excuse me, we want to rewrite everything using Golang, right? Something that's designed for containers. We want to decouple. So let's just use the different identity sources that are out there, bring that data to fruition, right? And then start to use that as well as rich governance and rich authorization policies around what's in the token, right? So every token mint is, can be authorized as well as the data that's in that token mint. And then when it, that token mint's evaluated at the end of the service using things like OPA, right? To make sure that, that data is is um, the data in the token and the access token is being used appropriately by the service. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. All right, let's see the next question. Um, 
Well, people care about, of course, uh, uh, security and FIPS compliance 140-2. How do you ensure compliance when you uh, when you deploy your stack with uh, the FIPS 140-2? Well, I, I think, I believe the world's, aren't we on 140.3-3 now? It has the yeah. world's, uh, kind of, and that's really about key storage, right? As well as encryption mm -hmm. types. Yeah. Um, so being, being able to use, uh, you know, the appropriate key storage and whether that is cloud key stores or on-prem key stores, this goes back to one of our earlier uh, points in the conversation of, you know, what if in a multi-tenant SaaS storage, I was able to control access to the keys. Now, I can right. start to fundamentally change the discussion because I can control the keys. I hear that something happened, you know, breach, whatever it might be for by one of your third parties. Now I'm going to restrict access to those keys for unlocking the data that's up in the cloud. And I think right. that's a big part of, of being able to ensure that your PEs are safe. You can do the same thing for NPEs, right? As we think about um, Spiffy in particular, right? When is it allowed to check out keys or when is it allowed to go and create next uh, net new X509 certs? Oh, I think I have yep. a breach of some sort between my different services. Let me, one, you know, publish a CRL for the certificates down to those breach services. But two, maybe I'm going to start uh, restricting access um, of exactly what's allowed to transpire. I want I want much better insight into each of in every one of the individual transactions for a net new certificate. Yeah, that's a good point. Very cool. And uh, I guess Ryan was sharing uh, how um, Rancher was uh, doing their FIPS uh, mm -hmm. compliance. All right. So next question you got was um, on a specific product. So you don't have to answer the product per se, I guess. But if you want to answer the type of product. Uh, if you want, um, uh, what are your thoughts on Cloudflare uh, for zero trust? So I, I don't have an opinion on on individual products that I'm willing to share yeah. on, on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I you know cloud, zero trust is a giant spectrum. In fact, almost everything in security now is zero trust. Chase Cunningham yeah. is doing pretty bloated, right? Yeah, on, on mapping out what zero trust means from SIM providers down to user authentication providers. Um, you know, and I would say. My thoughts on zero trust, like let's go back to what is zero trust? The user, the device, the service, the client service all need to authenticate each other and then authorize mm -hmm. every individual data element going on over the wire. Right. And that's and the thing, right? For me, for me, the, the people use the, the term zero trust just, just using a proxy and forgetting about the device, forgetting about the data labeling, forgetting about the micro segmentation whitelisting stuff. Uh, Cloudflare is a great product, but I think it, it's not a zero trust stack. That's not an end-to-end -end, uh, zero trust capability. It, it check a few boxes, but I would argue many of the most important ones are not checked uh, if you don't have additional products on top. So um, that's my take on that. Uh, I, I would um, agree, right? There, there's, it's going to be a symbiotic platform, and it's right. got to be an entire ecosystem because you know zero trust for yeah. supply chain looks very different than zero trust for an end user, which looks very different than zero trust for an API. And so, yeah, I think yeah. if you look at the biggest bang for the buck, and I'm I'm going to do a video on zero trust, you know, but uh, I mean for me, you know, at the end of the day, there are pretty three main companies kind of bringing a lot of the pieces of zero trust, you know, as a turnkey thing, bringing the device enforcement, the uh, uh, the user strong user authentication and the um, data labeling and, and kind of the, the mapping of that and micro segmentation, all that uh, whitelisting and policy enforcement point. It's really, you know, Zscaler AppGate and kind of Google with Beyond Cope now has a different name, but uh, uh, kind of the, 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 you know, the three initial leaders then is spreading and everybody's trying to do their, their own things, you know, Palo Alto and others, um, F5, you know, 
but but I think you know the, the device enforcement point I think is probably the most uh, forgotten uh, piece of the puzzle of zero trust. I, I how many times I've seen people not even think about device enforcement and just oh it's okay we do strong identities who cares about the device well you know even if the device is just accessing a website that device could have malware to keylog to take screenshots of what you're looking at i mean it's just, it's still a massive risk inject stuff in your session reuse the keys i mean it's it's a massive risk to just ignore the device state I agreed and exactly um <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, and I think that's why it's so imperative to bring that data to fruition, right? And when I say fruition, I don't mean just storing it in your SIM, right? That's that's valuable, but you know, you're kind of waiting till after the fact. There's no real time remediation right. that can occur. But being able to have a device, um, a device profiling service, right, that is doing a good job in real time, is sending out notifications, or being able to be queried, like, hey, how much do I trust my iPhone, you know, Pro Max 13 um, that Nicholas is running, and, and so. Yeah. That that has to lend in or jump into like the credibility of the transaction. It's not just to the user authenticate to your point, but how much do I trust the device he's authenticating on? Does that mean he can be an admin or does that just mean he can you know, do something simple uh, for a non-privileged transaction? Yeah, yeah, very good. So we have two questions now kind of uh, unrelated to uh, ICAM, but, you know, part of the kind of the same ecosystem. So I always take every question anyways, but... Uh, you don't have to answer them, but I'm going to give a shot. And then if you want to add to that, uh, feel free to do it. Um, so I guess the first question was looking uh, forward to the discussion on, on Atlassian. And what is your go-to recommendation as an alternative to Jira? So I guess I, I, I posted uh, yesterday about the fact that Atlassian had, a, had an issue, a tech stack issue. I don't think it was cyber related, but uh, more like uh, an actual bug that led to uh, many customers, not a lot, but enough to be painful, uh, to lose access to their Atlassian suite uh, for up to two weeks, which is, mm -hmm. which is a very long time. <laughs> I don't know how you survive no, no without two weeks of planning. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, it's when you really use a suite for project management, you effectively told them like the entire sprint would be done without a, <laughs> without a tool, right? So that's yes. pretty scary. Um, and if you have tickets and all this stuff, and the more you use features and bells and whistles, the more painful it's going to be. Uh, many of the other products integrate to Jira and, and create tickets and things that now wouldn't work. So it's a pretty, you know, a mind-boggling issue. And you know, my take was always I've been vocal about the number of CVEs of Jira and, and, and Confluence for a publicly traded company, kind of getting away with it for years, mostly because the fact is there's not a lot of competition. It's pretty surprising, you know, that really no one is, I mean, look, you have GitLab, right? That has a lot of the features, but they know they're, you know, they're starting on the Git standpoint, the CI side, they're kind of trying to play and catch up, you know, on the product management side, they have some good stuff, you know, tickets, issues and all these things and kind of Kanban boards and, and, and stuff. But it's first, it's a paid, you know, it's a paid, pretty expensive feature. But it's also um, not fully ready, you know. There's still a lot of work, and, and they're doing the work, right? But but uh, the mm -hmm. fact is, uh, there's not a lot of a lot of alternatives to Jira. There's a little bit of different tools you could use when it comes to chat ops and and when it comes to uh, you know uh, Kanban boards and stuff. But it's not cohesive as a you know kind of the suite. I, I never really liked you know the um, Bitbucket, right? Uh, I think um, it's not great. So people would go, you know, to GitHub and, and GitLab, and and now of course 
if you're looking at Jira and Confluence, well, you know, really, uh, GitLab is probably the next best thing, right? Uh, unfortunately, I guess today it's kind of there's not a lot of breadth of options. My fear is when companies like Atlassian are telling customers, you know what, we're going to stop our support of on-premise instantiation of Atlassian, and you're going to have to move to our SaaS, which now you know creates a massive cyber risk, of course. It was already massive because you're hosting all these 1,400 CVEs on your stack, and you get visibility on the CVEs. If now they don't have to deliver uh, the containers to you, you cannot scan them. You don't even know what kind of risk you're accepting. And you're going to use a SaaS version blindly and, and just accept the risk. But if on top of it, they can't even host it in a way that keeps the product up and running, uh, where you don't have two weeks downtimes, I, I just don't know what to say to defend them. I mean, there's just nothing left, right? Uh, so I don't know if you want to add to it. But it, it, for me, the, the fact that the company is pushing people to the cloud, mostly because it's convenient, also allows them not to be transparent with the CVs and the product. But then they can't can't even like host it right themselves right. and support it in a way that doesn't have two weeks downtime for customers. Like, wh- how is the world okay with? That? I mean, I see the stock not even like moving that much. I mean, it's not doing great, but it's not. Uh, you would expect the stock market to be like, you know, freaking out about this. I, I don't know if you have anything else to add. I- Honestly, I don't. I I, I don't understand, uh, you know, customer retention, right? When you see things like that, but the lack of a viable alternative to your point really. Probably the the biggest reason, right? And then, you know, people spend quite a bit of money on the yearly subscription. You can't just walk away and, you know, I I wonder what kind of compensation you get, you know, when, oh, they're going to give you a month free for, you know, for losing two weeks of service, you know, but but it's just like the lack of the actual um, loss of, of, uh, performance and, and, and timeliness and, you know, uh, uh, the, the cost to the teams that, you know, for a large team, it could be medians, mm-hmm. you know, um, that's, you know, I guess that's when you start realizing the importance of the tool, which right. I guess makes a point to, well, then they build a pretty good tool because it helps people save a bunch of time and money. Great. But it's not stable and it's not secure. And, and you know what was always driving me crazy was the discussions where we would spend more time arguing whether or not one of the fourteen hundred CVs was actually um, you know mitigated and how it was mitigated. Um, and and at the same time, you know uh, you could have patched the stuff for God's sake and, and not spend two weeks, two months arguing about whether or not you should have updated the bits or not just update the freaking bits you know right. uh like trying to mitigate everything maybe there's a stop gap but there was dependencies that were 12 uh, years old like how do you explain that as a as a cyber conscious no one can justify this and they they kept trying to and i was like guys you know just stop trying to justify something that just cannot be, you know, just update the freaking bits, you know? Yeah, but um, it's, the, it's, it's the tech debt, right? And it's the tech debt showing, showcasing itself as a SaaS company. Um, and I mean, I think this is actually a prime, a prime reason to go with kind of smaller, newer companies. There's reasons mm-hmm. against that too. But if I look at what's out there, right, whether it's identity management or whether it's Atlassian, right, I'm looking at companies that have been around for, you know, decades and they have the tech debt showcasing it and how you know how hard is it to update your your code it's super hard when you have tens of thousands of customers because you can't just push something out if it breaks right you have a whole different dunce cap you know that you have to wear 
Um, so you have to be extra conservative on what you're doing. And like, how, how do you bridge those two different worlds together? You know, part of it might be, I'm going to buy a new company or I'm going to buy a competitor, right? And, and start to transition people there. Or it might be, I'm going to build a secondary platform and do the same thing, which becomes, you know, itself extraordinarily hard because you ask people to migrate when your people are migrating, um, they're open to competition. And, you know, somebody comes and says, hey, don't, don't migrate, come buy my new product. Right. Um, so it's, it's that's a big uh, risk for them to do that, right? Exactly. So <laughs> Maybe they forgot about that one. <laughs> it's tough the right. whole way around, you know. Particularly yeah. when you told them you were going to sell this, and now you're saying, "Well, just kidding, we're not going to do this anymore." You know, that's yeah. uh, that's a pretty big blow, right? And, and I guess we we should have also mentioned Azure DevOps. I kind of didn't think of it, but it's true. A lot of people moving from TFS to uh, Azure DevOps, and you know, people criticize Microsoft, but the the fact is. The fact that Microsoft was smart enough to let Azure DevOps run anywhere, that was a genius move. I was mm -hmm. I was very impressed back then, maybe two, three years ago, when the Microsoft people showed up, you know, in my office at the Pentagon to tell me, hey, we're gonna have this Azure DevOps thing. And guess what? You know, I was oh, I don't I don't wanna be locked into Azure. I wanna run anywhere. Like no problem. This is gonna run on every cloud and, and you can run it, you know, yourself. Yeah. Um that's a pretty cool move they made, and 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 the, the tech stack is pretty pretty deep, and of course, it's going to tie with, you know, teams and all these different things, and that's fair. They're trying to upsell their products, which is fine. Uh, I'm using Teams a lot with a lot of problems, so I hope they're going to particularly the GoDaddy hosted version. Yeah, that's the other thing, right? You have companies like GoDaddy try to resell stuff, and 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 they end up you know cutting features, and you don't have the full like I wanted a, a dialing you know for my meetings. And so it happens if you buy 365 from GoDaddy, they don't have the option to give you a phone number, which is, you know, like two bucks. If you buy it from Microsoft directly, no, I can't do that. I have to move my tenants, which, by the way, there is no easy way to do that. You have to effectively have downtime of your emails uh, to move to the Microsoft hosted 365 to get the ability to have a, a phone number to dial in on your Teams meetings. Uh, and that's not a Microsoft mi mistake. Well, I guess they should probably not let GoDaddy sell their stuff if they can't sell the entire breadth of services. But, you know, that's how you get locked in, right? It's, it's simply right. a stupid decision where I just clicked on that, uh, you know, easy push button on GoDaddy instead of going on, on Mac, you know, on the Microsoft website and buy 365 there directly, you know. So you learn, leave and learn, right? Yeah, I, I was totally unaware of that problem, but th thanks for... Yeah, just, you know, GoDaddy has a lot of, like, Office 365 features that are just not on their version. And, uh, you know, it's it's just uh, it's what it is. They, they didn't integrate, and the, you don't get access to the full dash, that you know, dashboard on the admin side that you usually have on the 365 side. So you have a subset of the features. It's just bad. You know, you keep finding... Every time I look for new cool stuff, it's like you're lagging behind. You know what it reminds me of the uh, implementation of, of DoD, of uh, Teams and, and 365, effectively lagging two years behind, you know, the commercial region because we asked so much of Microsoft uh, in terms of security and nonsense on the government standpoint that they end up not being able to keep up with their releases on the commercial side. So effectively, your your government version is is lagging two years behind. That's kind of the same same concept, except it's GoDaddy that made the mistake, you know. So, all right. So last questions I think we got is um, Ryan asking about um, a pretty interesting question here. Uh, he had a conversation with a friend, and uh, that friend uh, brought up that his company does not have a GitOps flow uh, due to vulnerability of the cluster created by the GitOps repo. Um, so effectively saying that, um, 
and and I want to define a little bit what GitOps flow means to people. Uh, but but he's asking, you know, what do you think about possible attacks on someone GitOps repository? So two things, right? We talk about uh, Crown Jewels, and there are a few things, right, that uh, I think should not be hosted. The control plane of that thing should not be hosted on on a multi-tenant stack. We talk about identity management. We talk about zero trust policy policy enforcement point. And the third one for me is, is your Git repo. Uh, I think you want to control that Git repo and you want to know exactly. And, and you know, if it's very important source code, uh, it should probably not be internet facing and, and should be uh, behind a, a zero trust, you know, uh, controlled policy enforcement point. So that's kind of the, the Git. And effectively, you know, when you move to GitOps, your source code repo is your crown jewel. Someone gets into your source code repo. Uh, for us, for example, everything is policy as code. So if you get into my source code repo, you can change my my identity management rules and and all these things that get enforced by the identity products. So you get in Git, you, you effectively lost the battle because uh, you know if they can tamper your code, you're all done. So that's the first piece is Git is your effectively your probably your most important crown jewel in the organization once you move to GitOps and, and configuration as code and, and all that. So you have Git GitOps there now. For us in DoD, when we implement GitOps, it's a pull, uh, not a push. So what I mean by that is we use Flux mostly, right? And so mm -hmm. Flux is pulling from Git, and it's not your CI/CD pipeline. Whether you use Jenkins, GitLab, or Azure DevOps, I don't care. Uh, the the, the CI/CD pipeline don't don't have the keys to your production or staging environments to push into staging or into production. It's the opposite. Your Git repo has, you know, a master branch for production, maybe one for for staging, and it's going to pull the the production and the staging environment. Kubernetes cluster will pull from Git, so it's the other way that the keys that the production cluster have are the uh, Git keys to pull and the registry keys uh, to pull uh, to pull into that environment. So effectively, your your production and staging environments don't have pools open. Really, it's it's just a pool, uh, and, and so that kind of mitigate the, the push. And so someone getting access to your um, to your CI/CD pipeline could do a lot of damage in other things. But at least they don't have the keys to the production and staging environments. Although, like I said, if they get access to the source code repo, they probably can do a lot of damage anyways. So uh, well, that's another. The yeah, there's, there's an interesting facet here, right? Which is doing declarative policies, declarative authorization policies, right? Particularly for, you know, what's going on in your source code repo, right? That's one way of doing it. But then you also need to have a, you know, checker essentially, right? Is the policy that's in my Git repository different than the policy that I expect to have? Are there different versionings, right? Being able to do a lot more control. And th those are some of the things that governance really brings to bear. Um, because I might say that, hey, because this policy in my repo is different than my standards policies, right, for all applications, that maybe I'm not going to enact that policy. In fact, I'm just going to use my baseline policies uh, or roll back to my other known policies, right, for this individual service or for this individual application, instead of just mm -hmm. accepting whatever comes out of the, the repo as fact. And this is something that we're actually right. working on, on mitigating right now in our next version of policy management. Because it's so important. Yeah, that's pretty unique. That's pretty yeah. unique. I, we don't see this a lot. Well, we, we hear these requests coming from you know big companies. Um, like we, we what don't kind of companies are leading? Like are you are you seeing like more innovative or you know forward thinker on the financial side? I mean, what what sector are kind of leading in that kind of discussion? 
Yeah. So, so in this case, it's a, a big networking company, um, probably mm-hmm. the biggest networking company that, you know, is, is digital transforming. They're reinventing themselves and they're kind of breaking mm-hmm. apart your right, different aspects of what they do and saying, hey, look, we're going to ro- roll this out as a net new service or a net new platform that's separated from our other ones because we know that our tech debt's too big or on, on their older platforms. So let's try to build it right and build it again as a kind of a fresh you know, Netflix style oriented approach. Yeah. And we're seeing more and more of that. So, you know, the embrace and extend the data, you know, has to be able to move over, but not necessarily the underlying services, right, that make up the, the composite application. Um, yeah. So being able to say, OK, I'm going to I'm gonna, and this is one of the beauties of microservices. I'm going to be able to transition, right, this function over to this net new function that's doing ma- many of the large, largely the same things than the API contract without necessarily you know, having service downtime or otherwise. Yeah, very cool. And I guess wanted to point out for people that are um, kind of uh, talking about uh, FIPS 140-2, um, well, since I helped the Rancher team, and I don't know if I would credit the SUSE team just yet, but I, I certainly would credit the Rancher team that did it before SUSE bought them. <laughs> um, but the fact is, uh, it's not as difficult as you think it is if you do it right, and I kind of advise them on how to do it. Um, so first, you know, if you use a, a base OS that's already, uh, FIPS, you can reuse, you know, rel or whatever, and, and use that as a foundation. So you inherit a lot of the, the stuff right there. Doing a, a FIPS OS is a massive lift. That's piece one. Piece two, um, all you got to do is swap the bits of your crypto, uh, to, um, to something like borrowing SSL from Google or whatever FIPS that, you know, it's already FIPS compliant. So they, they just swap the bits, you know, the crypto bits for Kubernetes, for Istio, right? This kind of stuff and swap it to, to a FIPS compliant crypto, you know, uh, bit. And that was it. So it's, um, and, and then the process to get it validated uh, by, by NIST, once you have an existing OS, existing um, uh, lib, uh, uh, crypto uh, library, that's really, I think, you know, even D2IQ and, and Rancher maybe took, you know, what maybe uh, uh, three weeks to three months max. So is it you know it doesn't take a year. So it's not as as big of a lift as as people think. So that was my uh, my quick uh, feedback. So I always give the last words before. It's not really the last words because after you talk, I do give uh, the dates of the next shows. But I give the last words that matter, I guess, <laughs> to you uh, before thanking you, of course, for joining us. It was a great session. We had a lot of. Uh, people very excited about, you know, uh, security and identity management. Um, what do, would you like to share we didn't talk about before we let people go? And like I said, uh, when you're done, I'm going to give the, the dates and the the, the next uh, guests coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I'd like to just reiterate how fundamental authorization is, right, to your broader ecosystem and how big it is, right? Authorization is what cloud was, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, it, it's kind of encompasses, well, not kind of, it does encompass everything that happens post-authentication whether that's from a, a person or a non-person entity, right? That authentication process is great. It's doing, you know, it's doing what it needs to do, hopefully. Um, but everything post that, right? Can that service talk to another service? Uh, what data can be shared? Uh, what, what protocols and what, uh, what policy languages are available? All that really bundles itself into that authorization piece, right? Coming up the OSI stack. And uh, being able to fundamentally address it from an end to end, not just, you know, hey, here's my user coming into my application, but also what is that application doing to you know, all the other back end services is what we think of as like full stack authorization and being able to pull all that together, 
report, govern, uh, control how data is being shared is fundamental how you're going to build your cloud services as well as how you're going to adopt the edge services. And that's what we do. So thank you for the opportunity to speak to it and uh, look forward to, to following you on, on YouTube. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and it, I wanted thanks for the reminder because I wanted to uh, remind everybody, if you just reach out to two people that you know, with uh, so many people right now live on the show, we will blast through the, the, the thousand subscribers. So uh, I, I would really love if you could do that. You know, I, I, I want to get us to in front of as many people as we can. We're fighting this fight to uh, innovate and uh, go faster than China. And uh, for us, sharing this content, this technical information is so important to make uh, American companies uh, lead and also the, the U.S. government as well. So I appreciate you sharing the show and joining us today. The next uh, two episodes, uh, next Tuesday, we're going to have uh, Reed Nodvoni, who is uh, a member of Congress in Maryland uh, and uh, also a colonel in the Maryland uh, Air Reserve um, and a former uh, chief of staff uh, for the Air Force uh, uh, two Air Force CIOs, uh, uh, the, the previous two uh, before Lauren. So that's going to be a very interesting discussion on, on cyber law and how he's been pushing, uh, educating uh, members of Congress in Maryland to understand a little bit better uh, what cyber even is. Um, so that's uh, that's the next Tuesday, uh, uh, member of Congress on uh, at 1 p.m. And the 26th, we're also going to get someone pretty cool that you probably have heard about, who is uh, Stuart Schiller, uh, who is a Marine that uh, made a little bit of noise when he um, when he resigned from uh, his um, time in, in the Marines after the Afghanistan debacle um, and got into a little bit of trouble and, and managed to uh, get out of it. Uh, and, and and now is very vocal, like me, I guess, uh, to raise awareness uh, when it comes to the lack of of, uh, of uh, leadership we, we see in the, in the Pentagon uh, to some degree and lack of accountability. Uh, so he's going to be joining us um, also on Tuesday 26 at 1 p.m. Stuart will be taking your questions live. So we're going to get a lot of questions. So you're going to be, uh, you're going to uh, probably want to start, um, you know, posting um, your questions on the LinkedIn post we're going to have today because we're going to get probably a thousand questions for Stuart, uh, without a doubt. So a lot of people are going to join the show. So I'm excited to have Stuart on the show. I wanted to thank you, everybody, again. Thanks to uh, you for joining us and taking your time to educate us today on, on uh, identity management and security. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, everybody.